Hello, welcome to Lotcast. Whole lot of talk about a whole lot of films. I don't know if that's the motto, but it should be. I'm your host with the most, Pete. You may already be familiar with me. Probably not, depending on how that Tati episode goes. Joining me today for the September Roundup. Please ignore that it is now the beginning of November. We have got Balthazar. Hello. Also a newcomer to the bunch. Familiar face, Iggy. Hello. And yes, that Tati cast is coming, I promise. I sure hope so. And the other newcomer to the fray, one uh, Finn. Hello. First up to the plate for our roundup, we have got Balf and his favorites of the month. So the month of September was a really interesting month for me because I decided to check out a lot of documentaries that I had been already interested in, two of which have been incredible experiences, and I want to talk about them right now. So first of them is a film directed by Nikolaus Geierhalter, which is Our Daily Bread, and he is an Austrian documentary filmmaker. And this is a documentary about industrial food production. And I always cherish the moments when I find directors that sort of approach their work in a ways that align with my own perspectives and overall thought process. I tend to look at everyday surroundings through a kind of a ritualistic angle where I look at human behavior in an isolated state that's filled with all kinds of camaraderie and differences of paths and movement and whatnot. So this documentary is really fascinated by human beings and how they are integrated into this kind of clinical and cold environment. And the whole structure really is consistently punctuated by the ritual of the workers on their lunch breaks. So a woman enjoying a coffee and a cigarette after harvesting some tomatoes or a woman eating a sandwich after gutting a pig uh, or even salt miners taking a break to eat in their liminal dark space and whatnot. So it really offers another intricate layer into the already present range of the internal workings that is depicted in the film. And it's fascinating to think about and fascinating to watch as well. And normally documentaries like this are so kind of tunnel visioned to serve some kind of a preachy agenda. And they're mostly lazy with their anger and without any interesting vision. But this is uh, definitely an exception. Cool beans. So have you ever seen uh, Dominion? I have not. It seems like kind of an interesting counterpiece to that film. Yes. I think I haven't seen either, but Dominion focuses on the animals, doesn't it? And then it sounds oh, yeah. like you're... There's... Definitely, yes. There's a, another one called Earthlings, which I will also talk about <laughs> soon. But it, that's also in the same vein as Dominion, where it sort of focuses on uh, the suffering of animals for human profit. Yeah, it's heavy stuff. So another one of my favorite films that I saw during September is another documentary, which came out in the same year, 2005. And really, both of these documentaries are kinds that completely discard any kind of didactic or informational responsibilities that is kind of inherently associated with the genre. So it doesn't provide you with any interviews or commentary or any additional score or soundtrack that might impose a specific tone on a specific scene. This is a film called Into Great Silence by Philip Gronig, and it's a documentary that depicts the daily life of the Carthusian monks of the Grand Chartreuse Monastery, which is located in the French Alps. So a little backstory of the film is that Gronig wanted to make this film in the 80s with a really clear vision. This is what he wanted to make. And the monks actually said that, we'll get back to you. We need a little time to think about it. And 16 years later, they responded and said, come over, <laughs> let's hang out which is kind of insane and sort of fascinating to think about how 
time passes in vastly different ways depending on your environment and your lifestyle and your state of mind and actually passage of time in this environment is something that the film also explores quite frequently this is just images and sounds of the monastery and life that goes on in it that sort of lets you coexist with the subjects in a way that they already exist with each other and it simply lets you observe their discipline of silence and their prayers and their chores just like the director did who lived with the monks for six months and accumulated over 120 hours of footage which consists of images recorded with a dv camera and a super 8 camera and the actually the distinction between these styles is really fascinating because the dv camera is sort of what we as visitors are experiencing the environment to be like and the super 8 footage which has this really dreamy and airy lucid feel is showing us how the inhabitants the monks are viewing their surroundings with all of its nature and architecture so it's an it's, it's an incredible experience the director spent about two years editing the footage to perfect a clear structure that is definitely felt with the film film has such energy to it whatever energy the filmmakers put into it and whatever perspective they have it will reflect and emit the same energy upon the viewer and i feel like that's really important for documentaries the filmmakers to first communicate with the subject and then let the subject communicate with the audience and Gring definitely put a lot of thought and passion behind this project and reading about the film actually and his process is also incredibly interesting for instance he once mentions that the german title of the film is just great silence but he prefers the english version into great silence which has that sense of movement to it so i i really love that this film is very obviously made by a person that has such fascinating perspective and that perspective is clearly present throughout the film and it's a it's a really lengthy film it's almost three hours long Oh, that is uh, definitely going on the list then. Uh, <laughs> Piqued my interest. Yeah, it's definitely um, an experience for sure. It kind of sounds like you become a monk among them. Definitely. So my most favorite of the month is, and I don't want to say too much about this film because I feel like it really speaks for itself and the experience speaks for itself quite clearly. This is The Traveling Players by Theo Angelopoulos. This to me is a film that's, pretty much perfect there's there's nothing about this that i would change add or subtract it's perfection it's a about a group of theater actors and how they try to navigate their life during world war ii and their experiences with fascism and communism as well their performances are constantly interrupted by the oppressive political climate and their own stories mirrored the ancient greek tales which really kind of harkens back to the how important theater is to greece and how it all originated there Everything has such incredible consistency to it with all of its uh, repetitiveness and uh, sort of a symmetrical shape and structure that it takes that, that is so rewarding to experience and really satisfyingly edited, which Angelopoulos is really known for that. And everything kind of works together for a singular kind of destination. And it all comes together to emphasize the fluidity of history with all of its destruction and renewal and cyclicality and whatnot. An astonishing film to experience, truly. What are, what are you guys' experience with Angelopoulos? Absolutely none. Yeah, I've been interested in his films. They're like all, they all look very top shelf stuff. But for me, he's just like kind of daunting to get into. Because I think I've heard from most of his films that you need that historical context of Greece. Or maybe you don't need it, but it definitely enhances the experience. And I don't want to watch his films until I'm like ready to delve into that kind of history and actually experience all of it together, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like 
what has worked for me with Angelopoulos and kind of approaching his filmography is kind of spacing them out because there's like weight because there's like weightiness to it emotionally as well and it has a lot of thematic density as well so but it's all very rewarding to get into what would you say is a it's a good entry point for him i feel like landscape and the mist definitely it's it's pretty it's pretty great it's also not as um it feels like the most streamlined from what i've seen from him so far it's not as um intricate with its detail but it has a really fascinating movement to it and i i really appreciate that it's a great film i just uh, there's something about the traveling players that really resonates with me on a really profound level yeah i know jeff uh, specifically he suggested doing some reading beforehand to like, really appreciate the scope of it all and everything yeah cuz everything all gets kind of recontextualized in his films from literature and theater and other art forms especially like theater like that's a huge blind spot for me in general but also specifically Greece like i don't know that much you mentioned like, uh, recontextualizes a lot of classic greek myths i think you said right yes yeah <laughs> like that's a uh, pretty entry level stuff but even i haven't gotten around to that i don't know too many aside from like oedipus and a couple others <laughs> You see, I can't even name a few. Yeah, so those are my those are my best of the month. <laughs> All right, moving on, we have got Iggy. What are some of your favorites for the month? Okay, so I would say I had a pretty good month. I didn't have too many movies below a two point five, which is rare for me. I usually, even in the better months, I usually find a couple that are just like unavoidably bad. But in September, I had a I had a pretty good uh, streak, I would say. Uh, I started the month off strong with a Indian film called Jane Bido Yaru. It's uh, it came out in 1983 by director Kundan Shah, and uh, it's kind of a screwball comedy mixed with a political drama. And I know those two don't really sound like they mesh well, but. Somehow the film works despite all of its like potential tonal inconsistencies. It's about two guys who open a photography studio and then they just go around. They work for this gossip magazine after not receiving business for a while. They're like desperate and they they like stoop to that level, but they actually get thrust into like this whole world of uh like conspiracy and like murder between politicians and it's a very dense film. It's 2 hours and 10 minutes of like it starts off as like a comedy but as it goes on like it starts to you really start to see the political implications of what they're discovering and i think it's just a really unique film i can't really say it compares to anything else i've watched in indian screwball comedy mixed with a political drama like what else can you say is like that and i feel like if you know indian comedy you probably know whether you like that style i i found it pretty decently funny there's definitely a lot of sight gags a lot of fast talking dialogue that kind of thing it's very just silly overall and i enjoyed it i haven't gone into indian cinema at all let alone indian <laughs> screwball and, and in terms of comedy the only thing i like I haven't gotten into Indian cinema either. Like this is my third or fourth film. I just happened to watch it because a friend of mine put it on. But uh, I say the closest comparison is probably DDLJ, Diwali, uh, Dilhenge. Let I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. Close enough. I was about to say I love Dilwale, and I was like, that's my only exposure to Indian films up to this point. So uh, maybe this will be another place to jump in. Shout out to Om Shanti Om. It's another good one. Okay. 
I'm writing all of these down. Yeah, I haven't. I'm far from doing a deep dive, but this seems like jumping into a straight deep cut. And even though I'm kind of unprepared for like, you know, the Indian comedy, it might be a different style than I'm used to, like American comedy or Japanese comedy or whatever. But I, I enjoyed it regardless. It was very funny. The story held a weight to it that I appreciated despite the comedy. And I think the ending sequence in particular, it feels like you're breathing out after such a intense film. Like, you know, that last sigh of relief, even though this movie isn't intense, it still gives off that kind of vibe. It makes you laugh. It makes you cry. It may even make you pee your pants a little. You could say that, yeah. Uh, the next movie I wanted to talk about in my favorite section is uh, Barbarian, the new release that just came out in theaters that month. Have uh, any of you heard of this? I've heard of it. It's not out here yet. Yeah, I've, I haven't heard of it. Yes, okay. I've also heard of it. Yeah, so I've got three people here who haven't seen it, so I'm not going to spend too long because I really think this movie is best experienced knowing nothing about it. That's how I went into it. I didn't check out the synopsis. I didn't even watch a trailer, nothing like that. I just heard my friends on Letterboxd say it's like sicko shit and actually good. And that, it, that, that was enough to pique my interest. So I went into the theater. There's no one else there, just me and my brother. And man, it was just like 100 minutes of a roller coaster. The movie just took me on a ride. And yeah, I, I don't know how to talk about it without getting to specifics, but it's a horror comedy. I'll say that. And, you know, some of the great directors who've done horror comedies like Sam Raimi or uh, Wes Craven, it's very similar to their best movies. I'll say that. Interesting. I'd say it, it invokes their style without like directly ripping it off. It still has enough of its own identity. It's very effective as a horror movie. There are moments that actually took my breath away and I was just hand over my mouth in shock in the theater. And there's other moments where it was surprising me by how well it handled the tonal balance between horror and comedy. Interesting. I definitely don't hear about horror comedies that take people's breath away. So <laughs> I'm pretty interested. I'm intrigued because obviously the guy who directed it, Zach Kreger, was uh, one of the creators of The Whitest Kids You Know, which is an insane sketch comedy show. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to watch his transition toward horror. Horror comedy. I don't want to play up the comedy aspects too much. It's occasionally funny. It's like it's mostly horror though. Okay. But I haven't had any exposure to the whitest kids you know, so I can't compare the two at all. If it's not very comedy and is purely and is mostly horror, it's probably nothing like this show. Isn't it like it's? You said it's a sketch comedy, right? It's like uh, you ever seen movie forty three? I have not seen it, but I've heard many infamous things. Yeah. You know its reputation. It's kind of like if that was good, I guess. Or at least that was occasionally <laughs> funny. So like kind of lowbrow stuff? Yeah. Okay. Extremely, yeah. Yeah, this movie isn't lowbrow at all, I would say. Okay, interesting. Well, that's that's kind of why I'm curious to see, to see the transition from something that is real, like kind of stupid lowbrow humor to a movie that people seem to be kind of raving about as a good example of a new horror movie. Quite unlike things we've been seeing recently. Yeah, I'd say it's probably my favorite studio horror film that's come out, I don't know, off the top of my head, probably the last five years. Yeah, that's sort of the thing I'm hearing, and it's 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 exciting. I don't want to hype it up either too much, because I know you and I have somewhat differing tastes on horror, Finn. Yes, slightly. I'm still intrigued. I've, I've had enough good things from enough good people that I'm like, I'll give it a go. 
I am also definitely intrigued. Anytime, especially a 2022 film evokes that sort of response from someone, I'm I'm all for it. It's also just really nice to have this movie that's coming out where everybody's going, don't watch the trailer. Don't read anything about it. Just going completely blind. And I'm like, that's that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's rare these days. It's kind of fun. Yeah. All right, well, that gets a hearty recommendation for me. And the, the last movie I wanted to talk about is The Third Man, the 1949 classic that I'm sure we've all at least heard about. I was uh, late to the party on watching it, but I finally got around to it thanks to the Lot's 40s list, and it instantly shot itself up to my top three. In fact, it's the first film that I've given five stars since June 2021. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, on first watch, of course. But yeah, it blew me away. It's very tightly plotted. I saw Double Indemnity last month, and that kind of got me back into the into wanting to watch more noir films. So yeah, I thought I watched it this month. I was going to talk about it, but I'm sad I can't. Now we can bend the rules a bit. No, no. It was early August. That doesn't count. It's okay. Someone else might talk about it soon. Subtle foreshadowing. Anyway, The Third Man, yeah. As with like any five-star film I've given, there's pretty much no aspect to it that I would change. I think it's the plot itself is very interesting. I was personally hooked from like the first couple minutes. Like there's a good scene at the beginning where like my interest is peaked and it just keeps building off of that. Somehow I kept getting more invested the closer to the end we got. All the actors do a great job. The music is a point of contention for a lot of people. It's uh, based around the zither instrument, I think it's called. And a lot of people say it sounds like Spongebob music. <laughs> and I wasn't sure how to feel about it at first either, but yeah, I, I got into it. I think it fits the setting of the film and it helps make it feel distinct from other noirs. I don't remember a lot from it, but I do remember Orson Welles in it, who is really fantastic. Yeah, I think it's his best performance from the couple movies I've seen him in. He definitely delivers... That one scene on the carousel? The, no, the Ferris wheel. He has like this monologue and it just goes on and on. And you're hanging on every single word he says. It's amazing. I'm fairly certain he wrote that monologue himself, by the way. I wouldn't be surprised. But yeah, I, I love this movie. It has a lot of great twists. It's very well shot. I think Orson's entrance into the movie is maybe one of my favorite scenes now, just for the way it looks. And I'd recommend it to, to you three to either give it another watch, try to get over the silly music. Or give it that first time watch like I did. Yeah, I've been meaning to get back to it for a good while. I guess now's a good excuse for it. I will definitely rewatch. I don't remember the score being intrusive or grating or anything. I wasn't really connected to the whole thing. But on a second watch, I feel like it might hit a little harder. I, I, I think I just like these mysteries where it's like one person being gaslit by everyone else. <laughs> I think it's really entertaining to see them try to like prove the existence of this third man you know another similar film that comes to mind is uh bunny lake is missing which i haven't seen this month uh just a quick shout out to that movie okay so that goes over my three picks hot dog yeah hot dog indeed well i guess that means it's time for finn what are some of your favorites of the month of september my favorites of the month well this month i have been kind of all over the place. We watched some vampire films. We watched a bunch of 40s films. And we watched a bunch of random stuff. It's been kind of interesting. My big favorite of the month so far was Double Indemnity. Nice. I 
really enjoyed Double Indemnity. It is a very cool film. This is something I discovered while watching 40s films this month, which is they are a little more intense than I was expecting. I think of the 40s as being kind of, you know, there's there's the Hays Code and there's just kind of general social morality at the time. And Billy Wilder was still doing his thing even back in the 40s. That movie is sleazy and sexy and dangerous and very cool. I agree with you about the deceiving intensity of the film. I think because of the Hays Code, a lot of the script had to be like more subtext than, yes. than like pure text. And that kind of like implants the you know the sexy feeling the dangerous feeling it kind of implants it deeper into your mind than it would normally i think yeah it's like uh it increases the pressure because it's all kind of pushed down it can't nothing can be said explicitly or shown explicitly and so there's this boiling undercurrent beneath the whole film and it's it's real intense i like it a lot yeah i i love double indemnity when i watched it in august just another example of uh, Billy Wilder being the greatest filmmaker to ever do it. I was going to say, nobody writes terrible people like Billy Wilder. Dude, he's so good. <laughs> he's just the best at it. He's absolutely the best. Yeah, that was one of my fives, one of my very few fives of the month. My other best film of the month was another 40s film and another shockingly dark one, which is White Heat. Has anybody here seen White Heat? Not yet. I did not get around to it, but I'm familiar with James Cagney. I know he's a he's a great performer. He's fantastic. So the only thing I can like in White Heat too, I guess, is De Palma's Scarface, made in the forties. It is. Whoa! Now that interests me. <laughs> it is absolutely insane. I have no idea. How, well, I do know how they got away with this character because he he does not have a a happy ending, as he would, you know. Hayes Code, he would not be allowed to have a happy ending. But he is the most intense villain I have seen in movies, period. He is up there. So White Heat is about a criminal, criminal and his mum and his gang. And they do a heist and the heist goes perfectly, but the police are after them. So he goes to jail for a crime that was not the heist. And, you know, it's, it's just a really good movie. James Cagney is like, really stand out it's dark it's violent it's kind of again it's another 40s movie where you are kind of shocked by the places it goes you know which was sort of yeah the consistent thing i found while watching movies this month which is the 40s is, is pretty good pretty intense yeah it's definitely one of my favorite decades for sure yeah i was i was really surprised i because i've not seen any 40s films up to this point so it was like i've not seen many up to this point at least now, Finn, what I'm getting so far is that you like Billy Wilder pe- movies about terrible people, and you like James Cagney. Yes. May I recommend this little film he did called One, Two, Three? <laughs> yeah, James Cagney plays this like horribly stereotypical, but in a good way, Coca-Cola executive, and it's set in the Cold War, and he just goes on all sorts of hijinks, and it's great. This sounds fantastic it is it sounds like all of my favorite things james cagney billy wilder the cold war let's do it this sounds great i will i will maybe be back soon to discuss this yeah i would really like to go deeper on billy wilder in general i think he's he's really really good and i've only seen a couple of them and i'd like to watch the whole lot (laughs) i have like i don't know maybe five or six to go and they're like his lesser known movies but his his top his top five is like uncomparable to any other director's top five 
yeah. Nothing but like masterpieces. Sunset Boulevard is probably my favorite that I've seen from. I was gonna say, yeah, I was talking about my top five, and I haven't even I haven't even rewatched Sunset Boulevard, which I gave a seven years ago. Wow, I'm pretty sure it could be four point five five star material now. I was gonna say, yeah, that is that film is not is not a three point five. There's a very particular kind of unhingedness to that film that I really (laughs) resonate with. I'll have to give it another watch. Soon. That's another one where I watched it from the 50s and I was like, oh, I haven't seen many 50s movies. And then this thing came out the gate and I was like, wow, this is crazy. So my final my final big one of the month, which I don't have a lot to say about it really, is uh, just The Fog, John Carpenter's film. It's it's really pretty. It's really good vibes. It kind of evokes a Stephen King atmosphere. And it's just, it's it's very comfy. There isn't, there aren't many movies that are as comfy as The Fog. Yeah, that's one you need to watch with the blanket over you. Yeah, exactly. Dim the lights down, get all snuggled up, and fall asleep 40 minutes in. It's great. <laughs> Not to any fault of the movie. No, 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 that's a compliment. Yeah, because I agree. that that I love that movie. It's one of my favorite carpenters. Yeah, sure. same. It is just... It, it has such a kind of kind of all-encompassing atmosphere. You just get completely sucked in. And if you've seen it a couple times and you're comfortable going to sleep during it, it will it will knock you right out in the <laughs> best way possible. Get the best sleep of your life. Exactly. Sleep through the ghost pirates. It's great. Wait, hold on. That movie's about ghost pirates? Oh, you don't know? I did not. It's about ghost pirates that glow terrorizing a town looking for hidden gold why the hell didn't anyone tell me about this i would have threw this on the priority it's... list a lot sooner ben didn't even mention the the comfy lighthouse radio station oh my god adrian barbeau is like a as like a radio dj talking over the whole movie dude like, that's what i want to do now i would love to live in a lighthouse and be a radio dj that would be i amazing. really wish i fit that in during my carpenter watches now but you really should have it's it's a very good one the fog is so good it's great i feel like that could easily become one of those halloween classics that you rewatch every year oh yeah easily but alas i watched it in september instead of october uh, i say it's spooky season begins in september <laughs> this is not a bad way of looking at things is that any of your favorites uh yeah, that's it. That that's my those are my favorites. Um, two forties films and a John Carpenter film. I fell asleep halfway through. Solid list there. Well, I guess by process of elimination, it's my turn to talk about some of my favorites of the month. I guess we'll start off with some honorable mentions. Killer Sheep by Charles Burnett. Rewatched that. Very good. Highly recommend it. One Cut of the Dead. Finally got around to that. That was a fun old time. Ryuzo and the Seven Henchmen. What is this? It's a Takeshi Kitano film, one of his later ones. Definitely one of his more underseen ones. And it's basically just like a retired Yakuza grandpa hangout film. That sounds fantastic. And it is. I I like how you specified grandpa. Well, you know, you gotta be specific. Well, you gotta be specific, otherwise he could be talking about our age. Retired out of the Yakuza at 24. But uh, for the actual stuff, the favorites of the month, we have got a Fellini film, Eva Taloni. Yes. Great hangout film in 50s Italy for the first half, and then the more mellow, dramatic side of things kind of bring it down a bit towards the second half. Mm-hmm. But overall, I really enjoyed it. Um, 
shit. All right, take your time. Yeah, this is the problem of watching all of these while very high. <laughs> yeah, you get a very uh, <laughs> scattered view. That's not a good high movie, though. <laughs> Isn't it really sad? Fucked up or something? It's, it's not sad, but I feel like you are high. It's like It would melancholic. definitely give you an existential crisis about how you're just going nowhere. Yeah, no, oh, that, that definitely didn't <laughs> happen during the movie or anything. Say okay. <laughs> But um, I haven't gotten around to that. I was gonna do a whole Fellini watch through because he is director of the month. I even own the Fellini box that Criterion put out. I was gonna say Fellini has so many other yeah uh, high the movies. White was probably one of those. That was another one I watched during the month. Really liked that one. Seems like not a whole lot of people do, but I was a fan. Maybe watching it high is the missing piece. Ah, uh, you know what? It could be. Pete, have you seen Casanova? Not yet. That one, if there are any Fellini movies to watch while high, it's probably the one with the mechanical owl that sings <laughs> while people are having sex. Uh, I feel like any later Fellini film would be a good high watch from what I've heard. Definitely, yeah. I was going to say Satyricon right high. off the bat. That would give you like the scaredy shits or something. That's what I said, yeah. You, <laughs> that's a scary one to watch high. Satyricon's quite <laughs> That's a scary one to watch sober. Well, uh, I guess that's all I'd say about Fellini then. Uh, <laughs> Pretty good. Watch him high. Yeah, that, there we go. That's Do the drugs. I Do drugs, kids. I can't believe I just said scaredy shits unironically. I guess moving from Italy to Japan, we've got another Kitano film, Outrage. This was part of an all-encompassing Kitano watch-through chronologically. And after sitting through... What was it four or five of his more artsy this for me fuck off all of you films it's it's so nice finally getting back to his meat and potatoes which is just like real ritty yakuza films and this delivers it in spades it's kind of interesting seeing him go back to his old style of filmmaking which was a lot more slow and kind of hangouty in a way like a lot of his older films or at least his crime ones like boiling point brother sonatine yeah uh hanabi they're all just kind of more hangout movies with the occasional burst of violence after going through his more artsy stuff where he's trying to move away from all that into well whatever the hell those were that's a whole podcast discussion in and of itself stay tuned for the uh, the lot cast Takano <laughs> you mean the weeb lot kitano episode sorry pete you're not getting special branding fuck you i will i shall and there's nothing you can do about it but yeah it's nice to see him go back to that and it still feels modern he's updated it like you would think he's been making these for the 10 years or so that he hasn't and super good super interesting the two sequels are pretty good too i also watched those they, they kind of feel more like oh well this made a lot of money so let's just make two more instead of having like i guess a more artistically driven vision like this one has even though it's also still kind of a sellout in a way so i think that's really interesting because when i watched outrage the thing i noticed was that though he never swam in these waters it feels as much of a throwback to his own films as it does to like v cinema films yeah kind of the stuff takashi mike was doing before he was you know the guy and in that sense 
a couple cash-in sequels kind of makes sense, and their artlessness is kind of kind of charming because that is very much what those movies did back then, and it and it is a throwback to that genre as much as it is a throwback to his own films. Yeah, I think the outrage films are really really interesting because yeah, they they feel very modern while still very much harkening back to a style that you you definitely don't see anymore, which is cool. They're, they're good. Yeah, movies. I really wish it sparked the reinterest in yakuza stuff but i guess they didn't have uh that would be great if we saw a wave of like of like new v cinema shot on like cheap digital i'd be beautiful yeah in a better world yeah much better world my only impression of outrage is that i don't know if it's unfair of me to think this but it always seemed to me like they were more I don't know if it's this too harsh with cash grab movies from Katano. Yeah, and, and that's kind of by design too, because I think. Yeah, just that style. Just kind of like generic Yakuza stuff that didn't really interest me, which is why I never watched them. I think the introspective qualities of Hanabi and Sonatine, combined with the comf- uh, I don't know if I'd call Hanabi comfy, but <laughs> the the more chill vibes that both of those movies have. Yeah. I think that's what set it apart from other Yakuza films, and that's what I really like about them. And Outrage never really screamed to me that it was as unique as those other films by him. Yeah, kind of not story-wise, but filmmaking-wise, it's definitely cut from the same cloth, for sure. Okay. And my last favorite for the month is... Gonna be a surprise. For the surprises, because I'm cheating, and there's nothing you can do deal with it oh shit we shouldn't have made you host (laughs) there's nothing the rest of us can do now powerless before me what a plot twist i guess now that we got most of the favorites out of the way it's time for the stinky pee pee poo poo garbage who wants to step up to the plate for that i think both does yeah i'll start wait so this is oh yeah the stinky poo poo that means worst okay I'm holding up my end of the bargain. Please try to keep up. We can re-record. <laughs> nah, we're leaving that in. That, that was my conditions yeah, for being great. host, and I'm sticking to it. All right, take it away, Belf. Um, <laughs> speaking of meat and potatoes, <laughs> I feel like if I want to talk about the worst thing that I saw in the month of September, I also have to talk about how it compares to a film that I already talked about, which is Our Daily Bread. And the worst film is Earthlings, which I mentioned uh, earlier. So Earthlings is um, more focused on largest industries of the world, which rely on animals for profit and the inhumane ways that they are dealt with. And it's just horrendous. (laughs) It is so trite and bland and without any of the intricacies that make films like Our Daily Bread so valuable. It is narrated by Joaquin Phoenix, who is a vegan. And he's like, so guys, these are really awful things that are happening to the animals. Become vegan now. While (laughs) while in the arms of an angel plays in the background. It's saying absolutely nothing. There's nothing intellectual or visual that I can grasp on to feel that this director has anything of value to say other than, yes, I have a enough of a moral understanding that, to know that these scenes of raccoons getting skinned for clothing is really awful and upsetting. But you're just using Joaquin Phoenix to tell me that these scenes of raccoons getting skin for clothing are awful and upsetting. There's no connection being made to me. 
So this is in the same vein of Dominion as well. Yeah, I haven't seen any of these, but a lot of people say these kind of movies turn them vegan. And I don't know if that's a reality I'm ready to face because <laughs> I like eating meat. Sorry to say. I refuse to watch your movies because I am a conist. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at the letterbox page for Earthling, so and yeah, it mentions it uses pretty much just all hidden cameras. And that kind of makes sense compared to what you talked about with the other movie. It feels like it would be a lot more restrictive and bland in comparison. Yeah, very much so. This is solely concentrating on animal suffering, and it has absolutely nothing of value to say cinematically to add to that experience, which I feel like Our Daily Bread, even the title Our Daily Bread has that religious connotation to it, which makes you feel how, how the makers of the film think. Forgive the pun, but at least it's something to chew on, right? God damn. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I definitely recommend Our Daily Bread. I definitely do not recommend Earthlings. <laughs> Another one of the worst films that I saw during September is um, Rampo Noir, which is an anthology film that adapts the short stories of Edogawa Rampo, who is a horror story writer, Japanese horror story writer. And I feel like anthology films in general are kind of a gamble to get into because one might work, one might not work, and then the whole structure becomes kind of clumsy. And to be honest, the word clumsy is how it, I would describe this film in general, just overall experience. The adaptations themselves feel not in tune with the source material. And there are some really distracting visual effects that really take me out of the experience overall. There's just not much to say about it. I've only read about a couple of the short stories from the writer. And one of the short stories is actually adapted in here in this film. And yeah, it's not representative of the either the style of the writer. Most of the short stories take different paths in terms of genres. One of the short stories who's uh, I believe is directed by Sato. Pete, I know you've seen a couple of films from this director, like The Bedroom. Oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, and he actually introduces uh, like a, a hint of comedy to his short, which was kind of refreshing. But other than that, I find this really kind of bland and unengaging and sort of making decisions that don't fit in anywhere. No, no, um, Akiyoji Soji. Yeah, that's definitely one of the most disappointing parts of this film for me. Oh, really? Because this is an incredible director and uh, the segment in this film feels like he just <laughs> wanted to do some mirror shots and that's it. Oh, is it the one called Mirror Hell? Yes. Mirror hell. And one of the characters in this short film actually says, what are we, some kind of mirror hell? Like It's, <laughs> it's that same vein of Suicide Squad <laughs> where they just say the title of the short film. It feels like we're in some kind yeah, of mirror hell, fun. guys. That's fun. Uh, so the last worst film that I want to talk about is actually a 2022 film called Speak No Evil which is directed by a director that whose name I can't pronounce, but it's a bad film, so I don't really care to pronounce it correctly. This is about a Danish family that are on vacation, and they meet another family. It's a wife, a husband, and their child, and they meet another family who's exactly like them. They meet the family, and, uh, hey guys, these people are not what they seem like. Ooh. <laughs> this film really lacks from um, any sort of interesting development of tension just overall which i feel like would have enhanced the experience slightly 
but it's so shallow and empty. It goes to places where it feels like the director is making some sort of commentary on how the, vile the world is or something. You know what it actually feels like? It feels like it's really desperately trying to get on the world is hell <laughs> hopeless uh, cinema list on Letterboxd. Yeah, I know that one. It's just really, it's lacking in any kind of interesting places to go. It's so telegraphed and just really shallow overall. A lot of people are having some really great experiences with this film, which I feel like is due to the last 15 minutes or so, where it's really unengaging type of nihilism and bleakness, where it's sort of unearned to me. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. You're not a fan of those last 15 minutes, unlike most people. I would be a fan because I love things that are in your face about it and push limits. But there's nothing about those 15 minutes that are engaging with the rest of the movie. It's just kind of gutless without depth. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, I, I had heard about it. It's not interacting with me or it's not interacting with the rest of the film either. Uh, yeah, I had heard about this uh, film before because it came out recently, I think, or it was released recently on demand or something. I saw it, it was getting pretty decent scores, so I put it on my 2022 radar. But I guess I kind of trust you when it comes to these, like, what what's the word? Disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> like these more, like, I feel like you have a good grasp on what, what makes them good. And uh, based on what you said, it doesn't really seem as interesting anymore. Yeah, I, I can I can see why some people might find this really disturbing. It's definitely not comedic in any sense, but it's, it's not developed to me. The disturbance factor, I wish, would have been turned up even higher. It's really bland. And then those 15 minutes are kind of, quote unquote, disturbing. But it doesn't have any rhyme to it interesting so those are my worst films of september stay tuned for more i had more i guess moving on to the next person and their least favorites we have got iggy yep okay so like i said september wasn't too bad for me but i did have some stinkers laid around here and there i guess first i can talk about the super mario bros movie which I actually watched on the same day as Johnny B. Doyaro, the Indian movie I mentioned, which is really quite a contrast from one to the other. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. I've seen this movie before. It's a rewatch for me. But what's interesting about this rewatch is that we streamed the fan-made extended cut, which has a lot of... Wait, what now? Oh, you didn't know about it? I did not. Yeah, this like super dedicated fan. I don't know the whole story behind it, but... I think he dug up like lost deleted scenes, maybe even some negatives straight from the filmmakers or something. I don't know, but it's, give me a second to look up how much longer it is. Researching live on air, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I should have been prepared for this. Yeah, you should have known you'd be asked about an extended version of the Super Mario Bros. movie. Tisk tisk. I can't believe you didn't make extensive notes about Super Mario Brothers directors. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, it's a long lost VHS tape that was found again and restored 20 minutes of footage for the movie. Did that make much of a difference? It actually did. I had the movie at one star before from when I watched it and it got twice as good up to two stars. Wow. Wow. Why did they cut that stuff? Yeah. It sounds like gold. Who knows, yeah. It helped the movie be a lot more coherent, I would say, but it's still not very good. It's just like any other kind of shallow kids movie, Isekai story about being sucked into another world. With Dennis Hopper Bowser. 
Yeah, he's definitely the highlight. And he gets a few new scenes, which were a treat to see. I see where the extra star came from now. <laughs> yeah. It, it just kind of falls into the like same boring tropes that you see in, the, in a lot of these movies. It, it makes this interesting world out of the games, but it doesn't know how to make the most out of it. It kind of sticks to familiar territory despite setting up so many interesting little nooks and crannies that could be explored. Now I'm curious, have you seen the other Super Mario Bros. movie? I've seen the trailer for it. Oh, no, no, no. Unless there's a third one. Why, you don't know about Super Mario Brothers the movie Rescue Princess Peach? A obscure 80s Japanese anime retail only something movie? I had no idea this existed. Yeah, it does. But it's, it's animated, so, you know, I'm interested. Yeah, also uh, recently restored by fans in like 4K from some 16 millimeter print. That's the only one known to exist in the world. I'm looking it up on Wikipedia and it says it's the earliest isekai anime to involve a virtual video game world. Wow. Breaking new ground. Nintendo really was ahead of the game. Yeah, literally. That is worryingly influential. Have you seen this Super Mario Bros. movie, Pete? Uh, one time years ago. A story for another day, it seems like. Another rewatch, but yeah, pretty much. Well, enough playing games. Ooh. My next worst film that I saw was, and uh, this will be an interesting discussion, I'm sure. Well, I don't know if anyone here has actually seen it, but it's the new... Uh, Andrew Dominic film Blonde that just came out on Netflix. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I have not seen it. Me neither. It's so long. Oh yeah, and you feel every one of those 167 minutes, trust me. I took a look at that runtime and I was like, nah, I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people are getting on this movie for taking this tortured woman and continuing to torture her for like exploitation reasons and all that. And yeah, that's a part of why I don't like it. It seems kind of tired and lacking nuance, I would say. But it's also just a really bad movie on its own. The scenes don't flow together from one to the other. The structure is like all over the place. It has a lot of these inane artistic choices that I really hate when movies do. They switch the aspect ratio for no reason. And then they go from black and white to color. Whoa. I I tried to figure out a reason that it kept doing that, but there was literally nothing that came to mind. It's all like just pointless aesthetics for no reason. It's like empty aesthetics. Yeah. There's a part of me that thinks that the sort of exploitative nature of this film, I haven't seen it yet, but I feel like just from the title, I can feel that that was pretty much premedicated because it's like reducing a person to a single adjective almost it definitely is because the thing everyone is forgetting is this is based on a book by joyce carol oates one of her more notable books is just titled rape oh wow (laughs) she's kind of like that deliberately controversial kind of makes sense that a book based on her movie would be rubbing people the wrong way because she is I'm not even sure the value adapting her book instead of just a more, I don't know. I don't want, I don't want to suggest that going a more straightforward biopic route would have been better, but I don't think this is the way to go either. I kind of understand Andrew Dominique's, uh, he's got a history of messing with the facts, right? Chopper is notoriously unfaithful to the real events and changes much about Chopper's life. And the assassination of Jesse James by the Carol Report is obviously a very fictionalized account of something that i think actually happened 
So it makes sense that Blonde would be kind of like a tabloid attempt at uh, Marilyn Monroe because that's kind of what he does. But it just, it seems too long and too pretentious to get away with it. The great thing about his previous films is that they're fun. They're good, enjoyable, fun movies. And this seems like a very long, drawn out kind of art film attempt. Yeah, I haven't seen his Jesse James film or Chopper. But yeah, your point about fun kind of makes me think that them being fun movies first would make it easier to like swallow the messier stories with like more fictional stuff. But here it's just all like misery. And it's kind of just like the extra rotten cherry on top that really makes the whole thing even worse. I'm pretty interested in checking out these sort of polarizing films, but I feel like everything has all already been said about this and I'm really not all that interested in it anymore. That's kind of how I feel, yeah. I'm like, normally I'll check out these controversial movies, but this one is, isn't is grabbing me. It really doesn't look particularly interesting. Even then, like some people say, oh, it's a good vehicle for Anna de Armas to give a great Oscar winning performance or whatever. But even then, I didn't think she did all that great. She looks exactly like Marilyn, in my opinion. They really got her look down. But as a performance, a lot of her lines, she says it in the same hushed tone, you know, obviously trying to like hide her Cuban accent. And I don't think it fits at all for like most of what she says in this movie. It's very out of place. Does this really even feel like Oscar bait, baity at all? It switches from being kind of Oscar bait to, again, like those more experimental aspects that I mentioned that are there for no reason. It's like the worst of both worlds, in my opinion. I've only seen the trailer, obviously in some photographs, but I don't love how Anadamas looks as Marilyn. Because Marilyn was very, she, she wasn't girlish. She wasn't kind of young and cute. She was quite sort of, she was a woman, you know? Whereas Anadamas plays it very, very cute and very pudgy faced and kind of quirky, which I think is not cute is not really what I think of when I think of Marilyn. I think of seductive. As her appeal. Yeah. And not to throw this back at you, but I think that's a case that just you need to watch it. Yeah, I think that that might be the case. I think maybe she pulls it off. I think she, what you're describing, her like womanly, seductive attributes. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Anna Darvis does capture that. It's just those probably like still photographs where it was maybe not the best representation. Yeah, she's kind of more bright eyed and round faced than I would have expected. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. Bad movie. That blonde. Blonde? More like bland. Am I right? (laughs) Man, we got some zingers this episode. This is getting worse and worse. The last movie I had in my worst section, uh, I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but it is James Cameron, his 2009 world-changing event, Avatar. Woo-woo! Yeah. And I mean that mostly sarcastically. But I rewatched this movie in theaters, in 3D, in Dolby Cinema, which is like the premium format here. I've been waiting to rewatch it in that form for years and years. And man, what a fucking letdown it was. <laughs> God damn. Yeah, it just, I thought I would be able to appreciate it again, because I, I really loved this movie when it came out, but I was also nine years old at the time, so um, I, I was probably just swept away by the pretty visuals. I don't know, just didn't hold up as well as I would have liked it to. I really feel like that's going to be a lot of people's reactions to It's like, oh, I remember watching this in theater when I was like eight, and it's cool, and they go back to it now, it's like, oh, what the hell is this? I mean, it still looks fairly pretty. The CGI does hold up, and some of the action is well shot. I mean, it's James Cameron. It's just so hard to look past the story, man. It's just so garbage. 
What, you're telling me you weren't down for some unobtainium? <laughs> it's just like so boring and it's so long. It's also, it's actually five minutes shorter than Blonde, which is remarkable. Wow. That, that's his things about Blonde, honestly. Yeah. That movie did not need to be that long. <laughs> yeah. I, like I said, I don't have a lot to say. It's just the writing's bad. The characters are still unmemorable. I watched it less than a couple weeks ago, and then again, I couldn't tell you a single thing about them. The world is kind of interesting, I guess, visually in its designs. But even then, a lot of the creatures of the world of Pandora are just like creatures that we know. They just throw in a rhino with extra legs on its chest or something. It's very like predictable once you notice it. James Cameron's vision brought to you in high definition. The highest definition possible. So it's not going to drive you to suicide that you can't go and live in Avatar Yeah, I was about to mention that. <laughs> I feel bad for all the people who are no longer with us and are hopefully in Pandora. All those, all those people who committed suicide. Damn. That was a dark time. 2009. Yeah. A dark time. Well, maybe his vision will be a lot more clear in Avatar 2, 3, 4, maybe not 5, but definitely wraps it up in 6, maybe. I guess we'll see in eight years. I'm really excited for Avatar. I, I think it's going to be just the worst, and that makes me so excited. Actually, yeah, you bring that up, it reminds me. They showed like a five-minute preview of stuff in Avatar 2. Oh? Oh, wow. And how was yeah, it? This is exclusive on the Lotcast, by the way. What a time to be alive. <laughs> no, it, it was the same shit as the, <laughs> the 2009 movie. <laughs> I hear the water looks really good, I guess. that That's something. I guess, but I think something like Finding Nemo looks better, honestly. Oh, no. Yeah, it was just kind of awkward, like the way it was shot. It felt like he still had those restrictions, even though I know his attempt with the sequel is like he wanted to film more underwater stuff. But yeah, not good. I just love it when people attempt things and fail. <laughs> Especially when they have like $3 billion to do it with. <laughs> Maybe we'll see what he tries with Avatar 3, but... I'm not very hopeful. Yeah, the three million dollars is the middleman. <laughs> Just eliminate the middleman. Uh, that's all for me, Pete. All righty. Well, I guess we're throwing it on over to Finn now. What are your pee pee poo poo garbage of the month? All right. So my three. My first one is Feast. I have nothing to say about it. It's a horror film from 2005. It's really, really bad. It was produced by Matt Damon. And it only got made because Wes Craven was running a TV show to look for independent filmmakers. It made the most notable thing about it is that it only cost three million and got a wide release in the cinema and only made six hundred thousand dollars back. It's very bad. More controversially, my other worst film of the year, uh, the well, it is worst film of the year, but that's not what I meant to say. Worst film of the month is Three Thousand Years of Longing, which. Is gonna really hurt egg oh boy here we go this this nearly made it onto my favorites list i know you really enjoyed it and i i really liked the first half hour that is a film that just misses its potential at every turn after its first act it just falls apart step by step like a dying robot just pieces falling off as it gets worse and worse until it just it peters out the ending is the worst part. Oh, it's terrible. Now, Finn, see, the, the funny thing is, I agree with you. 
not not to the same extreme. Like I, but it does fall. Yeah, apart, like right? slowly, it step by step, it gets good. worse and worse. Yeah. But I think that's just restricted to like the last twenty minutes or so. That's such a small chunk of the movie, relatively, that it didn't bother me too much. Nah, I thought as soon as they get to England, that stuff is just, like, embarrassingly bad. Oh, yeah, that's the last 20 minutes. There is more than 20. You are being very optimistic. Dude, I've seen this movie twice. I timed it the second time around. It's 20 minutes. That is the longest 20 minutes. (laughs) Like, they cram so much garbage into that 20 minutes. Yeah, they do. It's, It's kind of bad. There's literally a scene where... Idris Elba goes to the Large Hadron Collider, <laughs> stands inside it, and then goes back to Tilda Swinton and is like, hey, you guys don't need magic. You have science, and science is awesome. It's really stupid. He is a, he is a reality-altering gin and thinks it's cool that we've got Uber Eats. It's so stupid. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds yeah, that, pretty good to me. It's, it's, it's a, yeah. That section of the movie definitely feels like it could have used a second pass script-wise. Yeah, yeah. There's stuff about it. There's the weird racism PSA that comes out of nowhere and ends with a pair of old ladies wanting to have sex with Idris Elba. That's weird. I think that part would have been better if race was more of a concern throughout the rest of the movie. Well, that's kind of the thing that it feels so disconnected. You're right. The the weird little PSA. The film is so completely unracial. You see these like historical kind of views of of the Queen of Sheba a thousand years ago, and it's it's mixtures of like all races and there's like Asians, there's white people and there's black people. And there's like no concern here whatsoever. It's just crafting this like completely like race blind fantasy world where it can just focus on fantasy aspects. And then suddenly they get back to England and England is just the most racist place in the world. It's super weird. I mean, is it wrong? No comment. <laughs> Great first half hour though. The Queen of Sheba stuff is, is really cool as like a standalone short film this movie about a, a genie falling in love with the woman who summoned him and then being betrayed at the last minute so she could fall in love with someone else. That's great. That stuff is real fantastic. And he grants all of her wishes, kind of leading her to that point. He really plays himself. Oh, it's great. I, I didn't like the sequences afterwards as much. And... See, I liked all three major stories he told pretty equally. Interesting. I was by the time it was the girl with all the bottles, I was completely checked out of the film. I was just kind of done. It was really disappointing. It hurt all the more because I really, I really liked the trailer and I was, I was very excited. And it just, yeah. And I was enjoying it so much for the first half hour as well, which made it even worse because I was like, oh, this is great. I'm gonna get home. This is gonna be a four. It's gonna be one of my best of the year, and it ended up being not very good. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say, except I think we just have to agree to disagree here. Yeah, I mean, this is the, I think we both see a lot of similar criticisms, but just they impacted the movie differently yeah. for either of us. Which is, I'm kind of the type of person who can forgive a bad ending if the rest of the movie is good enough, which this was for me. That's fair. I kind of, well, yeah, I guess I disliked sort of two-thirds of the movie more than you did so that that hurts the first third so when are when are pete and balf gonna watch this and see which side of the civil war they fall on uh i still need yes. to see all the mad maxes and happy feet yeah. and babe yeah, big in the city uh, and happy feet is so good the essentials <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> god i wish i'd watched that 
this month so I can put it on my best of the month. That's a great movie. My other worst of the month is maybe even more controversial. I watched Bicycle Thieves and I thought it was awful. Oh man, here it comes. Uh, awful. That's a strong word. I think Bicycle Thieves is a perfectly well-made film. Not spectacularly made, but solidly made. It is a film that relies on nothing but its themes. And I could not engage with them at all because the characters were so nothing. They are ciphers for suffering. The whole film is built around emasculating this one man and making his son really cute so that he eventually snaps at his son and the audience feels bad. It is so contrived. It is, it is so manipulative and it is so shallow that I saw what it was going for like 40 minutes in and was like, oh, this is going to do nothing else. And, and it didn't. This was the counterpoint to my wonderful 40s experiences. This was a terrible one, which is a real shame because I generally really enjoy neorealist films and really like Italian movies, but this did not work for me at all. I can definitely see why you would think it was manipulative, neorealism in general, but Vittorio De Sica has that knack for um, using children in poverty to kind of... Just tug at the heartstrings. Make you cry or something. Oh man, the amount of times this kid just gets hit by adults for like no reason other than to make the audience feel bad. And we get close-ups on his crying face, I'm like, nah, this is... I'm shocked this is as beloved as it is because it is... It's so contrived that it is... Well, that's I think it's definitely his best though. There's more of his that I've seen that are so much more incredibly manipulative than this. This feels like it has a bit of um there there's a, a hint of comedy to it at times, which I appreciate because mm -hmm. it sort of balances it out. But yeah, most of his films uh yeah. and are I like that. <laughs> at the end of it, I was like I kind of just felt like is that is that all there is here? Is that all that's going on? There's there's kind of a very manipulative morality play with some morals at the end and not much else it felt very shallow very hollow and uh quite disappointing honestly um i'm really into melodrama as well like as as far as it goes i prefer a real kind of over-the-top melodrama to a more subtle kind of dramatic performance but i feel like this was a was a really good example of how that can be done very badly yeah, I can definitely see your points. He has a commitment to the real, which I thought is very strange in reference to this film. Uh, I saw this movie while on a train in Japan four years ago, and uh, I have very little memory of it, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I don't think I loved it to begin with, but even if I did, by now enough time has passed that I've, I've forgotten about it. I don't know if it's the movie being forgettable, per se, or if it's something just with like the passage of time but i saw this movie on a bicycle uh, exercise bike? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no that was a joke what are we some bicycle thieves oh man i wish they would have said that <laughs> you joke but the film comes close at one point oh speaking of another uh, suicide squad tier moment <laughs> what was the movie i t just talked about No. Bicycle Thieves? Fuck. What was I? Hold on, give me a second. 
sorry. This is all staying in, Iggy. Just want you to know that. This is your punishment for being bad at the podcast. Everyone gets to see. Your balls exposed live on stream. Ah, forget it. Uh, one of the movies I talked about for one of my lists had uh, a Suicide Squad moment, but I forgot which one it is. Oh, it was Blonde. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Yeah. That is not what I would have guessed. Okay, so we'll edit this back into the Blonde discussion somehow, but... What are you, some kind of blonde? <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so kind of spoilers, but she has an abortion. And the scene following this, they play a song, the lyrics, Bye bye baby, I'll be lonely. As she looks sad into the camera. Wow. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. That's extremely funny. <laughs> I don't get what you mean by experimental now. When you said it's got a Suicide Squad moment, I thought, and then you mentioned an abortion, I thought you meant they were going to play Ballroom Blitz during the abortion. <laughs> Is that a song about abortion? No, it's, it's never mind. It's, it's cut it. This this fell flat. Well, anyway, back to Bicycle Thieves. It's definitely one of the earliest 40 movies I saw at that point in time. And I, I think I gave it a 3.5, but I don't know. Those kind of misery-laden movies aren't really for me to be honest same thing with blonde it's just like if you view life as like nothing but misery i think you're kind of missing the point and those movies kind of reinforce that i think yeah misery porn is is not a genre i'm particularly into especially as it all just feels so false to kind of boil things down to such a one note kind of constant tragedy yeah that's what it feels like one note yeah I'll give it a watch again someday. Yeah. It's it's perfectly serviceable misery porn. So, you know. Was that your last uh, pee-pee-poo-poo? Yeah, that was it. I, I blitzed through the first one because there was nothing to discuss yeah. about these. Fair enough. I, I have nothing to add either. I looked up the movie and the little monster on the bottom of the poster looks kind of cool, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You don't see... I mean... It's it's kind of fun. I kind of like the special effects on the monsters, but it's bad. It's really bad. It's a really high-budget version of a film that would usually be made on, like, 300, 400 grand, which is kind of interesting, except it's it's really not particularly interesting at all. Also, it's weirdly mean-spirited. There's a scene where a woman is... They think she's dead, and the camera keeps zooming in on her tits because she's a sexy corpse... And then they strap a bomb to her to throw her outside oh, to kill some of the what? monsters because they'll eat her. And then she wakes up and she's actually not dead. But they throw her outside and blow her up anyway. God damn. It's, it's insane. That makes it sound way more fun than it actually is. That's, that's not particularly fun. There's a layer of boring over the whole thing. Yeah, I'm kind of. But it's also kind of. I'm mean. kind of picturing the worst possible execution of that kind of scene. <laughs> yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, in in the hands of somebody more fun and psychopathic, it could be kind of insane and dark and hilarious. But it's mostly just kind of icky. Yeah. Well, since that wraps up Finn's pee pee poo poo garbage, I guess it's time for my pee pee poo poo garbage. Much like Iggy, I've had a solid month too. Not too many stinkers. Two notable exceptions, though. First up, probably the actual worst one, but that's all other thing. Project Power, a Netflix original movie 
starring Jamie Foxx and allegedly Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who I did not recognize until near the end. It was one of the movies ever made. It was produced. It was distributed. I think people have seen it. There's really just not a whole lot to say about it. It has a interesting premise about secret government people, whatever, distributing superpower pills to the people so they can commit crimes, I guess. And it just kind of goes nowhere with it. And it's just, I don't know, it's disappointing. And for the actual pee-pee-poo-poo garbage of the month, Takashi Miike's Yakuza, or Like a Dragon, for you purists. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. I, I know. For uh, anyone who does not know, uh, Miike is my favorite director. I've seen like 60 of his films by now. And he is also a prolific director. Yeah, a little bit. I do not know what the hell this was. As an adaptation of the Yakuza games, it's so fucking bizarre. Because it, it really has nothing from the games. Like, it's got the characters and some callbacks, obviously. But in terms of, like, the story, there's just nothing. But yeah, it's just a real bizarre adaptation. There's, like, this entire subplot about this couple who, like, starts off robbing from a convenience store that Kiryu, the uh, main character, for those not in the know about the Yakuza games. He has, like, a fight in there. And, you know, they see this opportunity to, like, oh, let's just steal some money from the register. And then, like, their whole sub-story escalates from there into, like, them basically being Bonnie and Clyde. Except it has no bearing on the story at all. And it's not even from the games, as far as I know. It's just, like, a weird mini-movie he wanted to shove in there? Yeah, kinda. And then the elements that does retain, like, Kiryu... Majima, Haruka, you know, all those. It, it's more of a remix of Yakuza than it is like an adaptation. Because most of the time it's just Majima trying to find Kiryu. Like, oh, hey, let's, let's have a fight, I guess. Or, or something, I don't know. We just need to fill the screen time. Until they remember that, oh yeah, this is supposed to be a video game adaptation. So in the last 10 minutes, they literally speed run straight to the very end of the game at the Millennium Tower, and it just kind of ends after that. And you think that Mike and Yakuza would be like the perfect pairing, yeah. and somehow it just became a disaster. This is fascinating because I've heard actually quite good things about this movie. Yeah, same. People generally really like this. There's this YouTuber I like who he's reviewed like all the Yakuza games and he seems like a really proper big fan and he loves this movie. He like raves it all the time as like a a good adaptation. Oh yeah, and there's definitely things to praise about it. Like the actor they got for Majima, he does a fantastic job with them. I I think Kiryu's kind of miscast. Like I never expected the main character from Ley Lines to be fucking Kiryu Cosma of all people, but here we are. But yeah, that, that's basically all I gotta say about that. That would have been on the surprise list, but I already cheated once. So there we go. I'm still interested in checking it out eventually. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth a watch just to kind of witness it. But I would not expect like a straightforward adaptation. Hey, do you wanna watch it together? Oh my god, yes. I have never played a Yakuza game. I've played like five minutes of Zero. <laughs> oh, 
I would be I... interested in hearing your guys' thoughts. Then I imagine it would work better if you have like no experience with the franchise compared to me, who's now on the seventh game after grinding through five and six. But yeah, this is great. Actually, that's let's watch it because I just bought a PlayStation Two and. I am going to pick up the Yakuza games, Ooh. starting with, you know, the original Yakuza. So, nice. I can, my introduction can be the Mike movie, and then I can move into the games. It's perfect. All right, we'll, we'll set that little date up later. Date. Moving on. Now on to the surprises. Balth. Balth. There we go. Have you got any surprises for us? I feel like surprising might lean in both positive and negative ways, and I'm happy to say that. My experiences with all three of these films were positive. First, I would like to talk about The Cathedral, which is a 2021 film by Ricky D'Ambrose. And this tells a story of a young boy who's growing up in a dysfunctional family. What stuck to me most about this film, why it was so surprising, especially for a modern contemporary director, was its presentation, which is really literary in a sense that it behaves like an actual book or a novel. There's a lot of parallels going on, and it also, that was really wonderful to see. And also how it captures the photographic memory and observational patterns of a child. It feels very autobiographical, but it also has a lot of uh, bursts of cinematic flavors to it, which I thought were balanced really well. Have you guys heard about this? I have not. No, I have not either. Yeah, this is a... I feel like this is a really prominent new voice in an indie scene, this director. I see a lot of potential in him, and I, he actually has a lot of, quite a few films out already, which I would definitely see after watching this. But I also can't wait to see what he does next, because like I said, I see a lot of potential. Okay, interesting. So the next movie I would like to talk about, which kind of surprised me, uh, is a film that we've all seen. Wow. <laughs> Took a while. Uh, the Sword of Doom. Yeah. <laughs> it's surprising to me because I don't generally gravitate towards samurai films. So finding a samurai film that's so well done is really surprising to me personally. There's a really exquisitely developed tension in this film that works so well. And also, I feel like, now what are you guys' thoughts about it? It's been a hot damn minute since I've seen it, but I remember really liking it. It's like this completely uh, depraved story of a madman just fucking everything up. I really love that the protagonist is someone that is morally corrupt. Yeah. And we see everything through his lens. And I really was fascinated by the ending, especially, which sacrifices narrative resolution for a kind of psychological degradation of the main character and sort of the culmination that it takes over the course of the film. I thought that was really interesting and it's very abrupt in how it ends, but I like that. It's been a minute for me too since I first saw this, but I remember two things. I remember Tatsuya Nakadai's performance and excellent, excellent sword fights. Yeah. Yeah. The bloodshed. So good, like expertly choreographed. I just remember feeling so tense throughout the movie. Definitely. There's such manic in uh, Nakadai's eyes that he communicates so well. It really services the whole film in such yeah, a wonderful way. I like how he keeps like, unraveling mm-hmm. throughout, up until the end, too. 
Definitely. It's a very gradual film and it's drama. Like I said, I like how the ending sort of discards drama for something that's more psychological. Well, I think that's really interesting because I, I kind of felt like the ending was a bit of a damp squib when I watched it. I really liked the film. Uh, I, I, I love the sword fights and it kind of sounds very kind of surface level. I just liked how violent it was. It was really interesting seeing a film from so long ago be so unrepentantly vicious. But I felt like the ending was kind of, it was obviously setting up for sequels, which never got made. And it just kind of felt like that to me. I can definitely see why the ending might be a kind of a turnoff yeah. for some people. I really was fascinated by That's the whole fair. thing. I can see how now, like in knowing there are no sequels, it feels kind of open-ended and interesting. But uh, I kind of then went to look to see if there were sequels and there weren't. And I was just kind of disappointed. I was like, I want more of this. It felt like you were telling me there was more and there was not. <laughs> I don't really remember the ending being too abrupt, personally. I just remember like the cool stuff with the ghosts. Yeah, but what I'm saying with abruptness is that there is no sense of resolution to the actual story with oh, the ending. Yeah. It just sort of yeah, for sure. cuts through the whole thing. Have you guys seen any of the movies by that director? This is the only one that I've seen so far. I yeah, same here. I've seen... The Human Bullet looks really interesting. I really want to see that. Fort Graveyard, too, with uh, Toshiro Mifune. That's been on my list for a while. You know what? I haven't seen it. I thought I'd seen something else by this guy, but I guess I haven't. <laughs> Cut this. That's staying in. But yeah. Oh, no. Fort Graveyard does look really cool, though. This there's a, I, I've got a couple of these on my watch list. but yeah. Maybe we should all try to watch one of these. Have a little book club thing going on. Okamoto cast. Weeblot. Okamoto. Okamoto. Whatever his name is. Coming soon. Yeah, definitely. The human bullet is the one that's on my radar. So for the last film that I want to talk about for the most surprising is I finally got around to watching Berlin Alexanderplatz by Fassbender, which is a 15 hour miniseries, which is sort of daunting, but I managed to watch it in two days. And this one is surprising to me because it's it's an incredible experience regardless of how many flaws that I found with the film. Nothing detracted from the actual overall experience. And I feel like Fassbender works really well. I, I sort of have a love-hate relationship with Fassbender. I feel like he's at his best when he's the most excessive and most indulgent, but sort of takes those ideas and squeezes them in this kind of claustrophobic, uh, suffocated world that he creates always. It's very hermetic and kind of closed off and contained. But with Berlin Alexander Plutz, this is a film that's an adaptation of a novel of the same name. And it follows Franz Biberkopf, who gets released from prison in the 1920s Berlin, and he was in prison for killing his wife. This is a character who's very, like the Sword of Doom, very morally bankrupt, corrupted, and not a very good person. And it's a film depicting his shortcomings after a life in prison, after four years, I believe. But yeah, just visually incredible film, an incredible experience. And there's an epilogue to this miniseries that is Fassbender at his most experimental. It's so indulgent and surrealistic, but glimpses of those sur surrealism also appear in the previous episodes as well. So it's not entirely 
detached, but the epilogue definitely goes headfirst into surrealism and experimental filmmaking. And honestly, it's kind of insane that that epilogue was aired on TV in the 80s because it's truly so cerebral to watch. It's it was an incredible experience the whole the whole thing. I'm glad there's a soul brave enough to finally sit down and watch the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the closest I've come is watching Pathfinder's other series, 8 Hours Don't Make a Day. Oh yes, that's the one I want to see. Yeah, I really like that one. I wasn't that big of the the only film I've, of his I've seen, uh, Ali, but 8 Hours Don't Make a Day really hit home. It's like it's depiction of it just like builds a cast of characters that felt really genuine to me. And well, I don't want to hijack this into a discussion about not your pick, but I'll just say it's really, it's a really good show as well. It has a good use of its runtime. So I believe that is also a comedy too. Yeah. It's a really nice mix of comedy and drama. Yeah. Fassbender definitely has a knack for inserting a sense of irony and humor into his films, even the ones that are integrally kind of bleak, which is fascinating. I'd be interested to see how Berlin compares to that one, given it's like, what, twice the length? Yeah, Berlin, Alexander Plotz is, um, it's a very brooding kind of experience. There's not a lot of humor in it at, at all. Most of the humor comes from the main character who's sort of, um, how should I say this? Hold on, I'll do the cocaine line. <laughs> what was I saying? The humor? Uh, something about it being brooding and the humor comes yeah. more. Yeah, it's definitely brooding and bleak, definitely. That's all I pretty much have to say about it. It's definitely an experience. Uh, talking about it kind of uh, is a disservice. <laughs> yeah, you kept reiterating how stuff didn't detract from the overall experience. and That kind of got me... Oh, into yeah, there's... There's a sense of stiffness to the whole thing, but watching it in two days and experiencing the whole thing in such a um, short amount of time, I definitely found that the stiffness that the script had aided the whole thing, and it really enhanced the experience more than it detracted from it. There's something kind of uneven about it, but I, I really enjoy that aspect about it. It's so n not perfect. But visually, it's really stunning visually. It's so smoky and 20s Berlin and how it's depicted and the color palette is sort of autumnal and sort of sunbathed. It really is a marvel to look at. Nice. Well, I can't promise that I'll watch it anytime soon, but my interest has been repeat. Definitely. <laughs> so those are my most surprising movies of September. <laughs> Very nice. Well, Iggy, what say you about your surprises of the month so the first movie i want to mention is not a 40s but a 30s film caught you a bit off guard didn't i yeah it's called a baby face so what happened is like i said i watched double indemnity last month or in august now i guess and i liked barbara stanwick's performance so much that i was looking at her other movies and for some reason instead of watching one of her 40s movies like the lady eve or ball of fire I decided to watch this one because it had a interesting plot synopsis, I thought. It's, a, it's about a young woman who kind of leaves her previous life to start anew in, I think it's New York. And she uses her body and her sexuality to like continually climb up social ranks and, you know, just attain higher and higher status 
and it's just really fun to see. Her performance is definitely the highlight, the way she cons all of these men. This is a pre-Haze Code film, so, you know, they get really specific. And that was also pretty novel to see, such an old film. It's a very over-the-top story. I bet from my little synopsis there, you could probably imagine that. But I feel like it plays into that in a nice way. It's just very silly. It, it, it's another one of those movies where, like, it starts off as a comedy, but surprisingly, it takes a turn into, like, drama. And you kind of see the consequences of everything that she's done up to that point, which I didn't really expect. I thought it was just going to be a silly sex comedy type movie. But the turn it takes is pretty well done, I would say. That's also another highlight. I saw some other reviews saying it didn't work for them, but I thought it was pretty nice choice that kind of made the whole movie feel well-rounded overall. See, it's kind of odd you mentioned the comedy because I've actually seen it before. Granted, years ago. Oh, yeah, I forgot you've seen this piece. Yeah, I had never noticed any, like, comedic angle to it or, or anything at all. It just seemed like... Well, just complete drama to me. Well, maybe I framed it wrong. It's not really a comedy, but it's more just like recognizing the absurdity of the situation is what made it funny for me. Like, oh, it, just, okay. it just gotcha. keeps going further and further than you would expect. And she keeps climbing all these ranks and in like these different unexpected kind of ways. And that's what I found funny about it. Like, she's not cracking jokes while on the way, you know? Right, anything. right. But yeah, that's that's my little recommendation. If you're done with the 40s, Finn, time to move on. Yeah. Egg, you said you liked Stanwyck a lot, and that's why you watched this in the first place. Yeah. Have you seen The Furies? No. Watch The Furies. Double Indemnity was my first film of hers that I've seen, and then this would be the second. Okay. I feel like this is what happens when you see a Stanwyck movie. You go, this lady's incredible. I want more. Because part of what pushed me to watch Double Indemnity was having seen The Furies and thinking she was absolutely fantastic. If you want something about Barbara Stanwyck kind of trying to socially climb, and you like Billy Wilder and his like take on like terrible, terrible people being wildly entertaining, The Furies is sort of that, uh, but a western. Nice. That, yeah, that sounds like it hits all the all the right notes for me. You will, you will definitely enjoy it, yeah. All right, well, you watch one, two, three. I'll watch the series. Perfect, yeah, great. That sounds fantastic. And we'll watch Yakuza together. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she's she's really shaping up to be one of my favorite actresses overall. Oh yeah, no, she's she's one of the greats. She's amazing. Even though I've only seen two of her movies. Same, but I love yeah. her. <laughs> she steals the show both. Definitely. Okay, well, moving on. I, that, the movie was called Babyface. I don't know if I mentioned that. <laughs> you did. Okay. It, it made me think of the... No, it's gone. Never okay. Well, the next film I wanted to talk about is Kamikaze Taxi. This is a little-known Japanese film by Masato Harada. It only has 400 views on Letterboxd, which makes me think it's pretty obscure. But I don't know if any of you have heard of it. I've not heard of it. I've heard of it. I don't think I've really like looked into it, though. Yeah, well, the reason it's so surprising for me is, uh, you know, with a title like that, you would kind of expect something Mike-ish. Is that really how you pronounce VK's name? 
No, it's it's me, Kay. No, it's it's me, Kay. Okay. I see. <laughs> yeah, you had me questioning that for a second. Good old Mike. <laughs> yeah. It's all me. The title called Kamikaze Taxi. You'd expect crazy Mike guns blazing, that kind of thing. But no, this is a to use the term Pete is uh, quite fond of. This is a really chill hangout film. It's like a road movie between two nice. interesting characters. It really takes its time. I'm noticing that this is also around 165 minutes, which a lot of my movies have been. This is an example of one that uses that time well. It kind of feels like a condensed TV show in a good way. Every 30 minutes, like the characters move on to doing to a, a new stop of their road trip. And like they either get into interesting scenarios where they push the plot forward or they just like fully slow down and you get to see them evaluating what they've been through and like the character development really comes to the forefront and the movie just has a really nice rhythm to it i think it kind of sounds like the second half of eureka by yeah aoyama there yeah this is very a lot of people have said that i've read a few reviews it's very eureka ish this looks really good. This sounds really it good. It is, yeah. I'm looking at it now. It's got a great cast. Yeah, well. Koji Yakusho. He's one of my favorite Japanese actors. He's great. Yeah, yeah you got Tetsu. One he, play, he plays this interesting character where he's like, he was born in Japan, but he left to go live in South America for like decades. And in the film, he's finally come back. And now he's facing like all these prejudices from more, this is an air quotes, native Japanese people. It's interesting. I never thought that would be like such a social issue, but apparently it is in Japan. Like there's a real divide between those native Japanese and, you know, what some people view as like the other kind of Japanese people. And the movie like gets into all that. And yeah, it's just another interesting aspect of his character. Definitely have to bump that up on the priority list. Yeah. And since he's South American, the soundtrack uses a lot of uh, I think it's Chilean flutes, which is interesting. Never heard that before. It's a it's a nice soundtrack. It, it aids the the cozy vibe the movie's going for. Cool. Oh, it looks good. It looks interesting. Yeah, good uh, four star wreck for me. So um, those two previous surprises were good, good surprises. But like Belth said, I feel like the nature of the surprise can either lean into a disappointment or a good surprise and. Fortunately, my last pick has to lean into the disappointment side. It's a uh, oh no! This recently released movie called "We're All Going to the World's Fair." Mm. Oh yes, I've heard about this. Yes. Yeah, it sounded really interesting for me. It's about a teenager who is like terminally online, <laughs> and it's kind of like a horror movie. It markets itself as a horror movie that like tackles that subject matter. But my disappointment came in that it's not really a horror movie in any sense it's more just like a slow drama and it didn't really meet the potential that i think something as fresh as that subject matter has you know mm-hmm. yeah kind of stays to the surface level and it's a it's a very vibey movie but I, I wanted something a bit more substantial from it personally it kind of looks like a youtube video oh yeah i think it's well a lot of it is filmed through like webcams and then Parts of it, you could tell it's like not a student film, but like a low budget, super low budget feature in that style. Yeah, there's always, this is one of those movies that really looks like a kind of like Zoom or cinema that I just don't know if I could get into, which is a real shame because I like the idea. Yeah, I mean, it's like 
it's very dreamy and mm-hmm. sometimes the style works for it but it never really like takes the concept as far as it could go okay mm, that sucks yeah the filming through webcams thing is definitely what attracted me most to it when i heard about it that's interesting that's what turned me off most. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm like, not that I'm like a snob about like, you know, 35 millimeter. Yeah. It just, I don't know. It, it, it looks kind of like a, a movie put together from really, really nicely produced TikToks. Yeah. It's got that kind of vibe, which is, you know, there's maybe something to that, but yeah, it doesn't seem super appealing from what I've seen of it. It's kind of fair. Yeah. Another thing I, I appreciate about it is that it's about, like, making friends online, which, you know, we can all relate to here. Nah, what are you talking about? <laughs> I can relate, guys. Come on. So that, that aspect of it is definitely... Yeah, I guess it's... It's the most relatable part of the movie for me. So you didn't like it as a horror movie? No. But how how is it just taken as a drama? Obviously, you didn't... You weren't really expecting that, so maybe it was like subverted your expectations. But if you'd gone in kind of expecting something more dramatic, would it have been more engaging, or is it just kind of just kind of flat across the board? Well, see, it doesn't really. I don't know. Giving it all these labels doesn't really work because it is a unique movie that is unlike a lot of things I've seen in the past year. So I don't know if calling it a straight drama is really appropriate because it's not like you know characters yelling at each other and like getting into arguments and like exploring the human soul or whatever it's none of that it's like i said it's just kind of a vibes movie i'm interested i was gonna say yeah looking at it i wouldn't expect it to be able to integrate any kind of dramatic element so when you described it as a drama (laughs) i was sort of interested yeah that's that's kind of what got me interested i was like huh. i would say it's not like the most narratively focused movie, but it's more about the themes and kind of presenting those as the reality of the film instead of like any kind of grounded world that we can relate to. Is it is it saying internet bad? No. <laughs> okay. Internet bad if too much. There we go. But yeah, it, it kind of misrepresented. Well, I don't know, because I imagine a movie this small didn't have that much of a marketing budget, but... Just from what I saw, I expected it to be more like a like a creepypasta type internet horror movie, but it's really not that. And that's part of my disappointment, but it's not the whole thing. I think, in general, the ideas here just kind of lack that extra step that, to make them really something worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair enough. It sounds kind of disappointing. I am now more interested just because I kind of... You, you have made me interested by making me completely unsure of what this is at this point. <laughs> Sorry, am I, like, selling it badly? Yeah, no, you're, you're selling it well. <laughs> I just don't think that was your intention. Perhaps it doesn't sell itself well. Yeah, I, I you have made me curious. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my uh, Letterboxd, the people I follow, they really resonate with it. I see a bunch of five stars, yeah. 4.5s. I was going to say, I see it, the people I follow, it's a lot of fives and it's a lot of like ones. <laughs> yeah, it's probably just divisive by the nature of it. I'm, I'm glad it resonated with those other people. Just wish it could have been the same for me. I'll still check it out sometime. I'll be real. 
I'm mildly curious, but I will probably never watch this film. <laughs> I mean, it's only like what? What is it? Eighty or ninety minutes? Yeah, but that's like that's like eighty or ninety minutes of a Barbara Stanwyck movie. So oh, know. that's true. I definitely took two Stanwyck over this one. Those were my three picks: two good, one bad. As is life. Nice. As is life. Well, Finn, you got any surprises for us? Boy, do I have surprises. So, um, <laughs> the sound of a paper flipping. That was that was me flipping my notes. <laughs> my surprises are they're not really films that I particularly disliked or liked. They're just films that were very different to what I expected. My first surprise was Bambi. Nice. Oh wait, in a good way or bad way? Completely neutrally. I thought Bambi was lovely, but. Bambi was so all over the place. It is not... I watched this film as a kid, and I remember being like, it's not sad, hugely, when Bambi's mom died. I feel vindicated in this. That is not a sad scene. It is over so quickly, and not dwelled on at all. It's fascinating that this movie is the, like, oh, it destroys me kind of movie. The reputation it has is very strange. Maybe uh, Victoria DeSica should have taken a shot at it. Yeah, yeah, no, if there was some, some close-up of Bambi's crying face <laughs> and the, the grown-up deer hitting him in the head, that might have made me cry. But also, they turn into teenagers halfway through the movie. And everything gets weird. It becomes a goofball comedy. The little girl skunk flower turns out to be a boy with, like, a surfer dude accent. It's really strange. I liked Bambi, but it was just not at all what I expected. It was a very, it felt almost like a 70s Disney movie, but made in the 40s. Mm. It was very weird. I can um, see that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's more kind of fun and childish and silly than I expected, because that first act to first half of the movie is quite sort of serious and kind of pretty and cute. And then it turns into like a kind of goofy goofball thing. Yeah, to me, it always felt like sort of a therapy session for a deer that is uh, mentally destroyed <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I feel like my thoughts on this are a little bit disjointed, but it's just because Bambi was a really sort of all over the place film. Yeah, the movie um, itself was like that. It was not, I expected something a bit more, uh, I guess, somber. Yeah, that, that's kind of why I like the movie so much, because it just shirks your expectations a little bit. Oh, yeah, I had a great time. I thought it was great. I just, uh, it just was not great in the way I thought it would be. I was really vibing with the, the stuff with, like, the cute deer and ever, all, the, all the animals talking like babies, and that shit was so fucking cute, and then suddenly we have, like, a, a time skip, and they're all teenagers, and it's... It gets it's weird. <laughs> It's weird, but not bad weird. So that was one of my surprises. Bambi. It gets weird. So my other surprising film was another kind of neutral one. I didn't, I think nothing I watched was surprisingly bad or surprisingly good. This is the closest we get to surprisingly bad. The Maltese Falcon. Oh. I felt extremely underwhelmed by the Maltese Falcon. Everything was setting up to be something I loved. I, I love John Huston. I love Humphrey Bogart. 
I'm a fan of noir. And then I kind of came out of the Maltese Falcon like, yeah, it's a, it's a 3.5 out of 5. It's all right. Solid. And I just, that that was a surprise to me. I thought I would love it, and I I didn't. Yeah, that was pretty much my reaction to it, too, when I watched it not too long ago. Yeah. I think my issue with it is I kind of like my noir a bit a bit more plotty. This is very characters kind of floating around. You're not really given a lot of information as to like what is really happening with the plot. It's kind of all just happening in the background while you're seeing the characters kind of bitch at each other. Mm. And that's what's meant to be entertaining, the kind of dialogue and the the quipping and things. And I'm like Well, if if it's Bogey doing the bitching, that sounds oh, great. He is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. Bogey, great. Peter Lorre, it's great. The whole cast, the cast are fantastic. But the Maltese Falcon just it it didn't hit. It was one of the first noirs we watched this month as well. So it, I hadn't even seen White Heat and Double Indemnity by this point. I, I wasn't comparing it. I was kind of in a vacuum. great. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I was like, Humphrey Bogart is fantastic. The film is solid, but it it's merely solid. It's merely very good. And I was expecting something a little bit more. Hmm. Well, that's surprising. Yeah. yeah. So that was my surprise. Yeah. I sure uh, am surprised. Exactly. <laughs> and my final uh, surprise of the month was Taken 3. Hmm. An actual curveball. Because that film is f- fucking mental. <laughs> that is the craziest film I have seen in so long. So I guess the surprise is that I liked it as much as I did. Uh, it's edited like a Jackson Pollock painting. all over the place it's wild it kind of comes together into sort of an aesthetic that is almost really really cool you can't tell what the fuck is happening in the action sequences it's close-ups on eyebrows and gun triggers and shoes and then it pulls back and three dudes are on the floor and liam neeson is like reloading his gun it's crazy. There's a sequence where Liam Neeson is in a car and then another car knocks him off a cliff. And then you get a bunch of quick cuts of the cliff and the other car driving off and the car rolling over and the car blows up. And then it immediately cuts to Liam Neeson back on the road at the top of the cliff. No burns, no cuts. No scrapes. It's never explained how he got back. It's wild. They even do a flashback when he meets the guy who pushed him off the cliff. And the guy's like, how did you survive? And they just cut to a like second and a half long clip of Liam Neeson standing next to the burning car as if that explains how he survived falling off a cliff and exploding. It's amazing. It's, it's beautiful. You know, going into this, I wasn't expecting to be sold on Taken 3, but yet here we are. It's amazing. The film is obsessed with bagels. Like, (laughs) there's a theme. There's a theme of bagels. Characters eat bagels. Now you really got me. bagels. You're hitting me where I live. (laughs) Boris Whitaker is in this movie, and he eats a bagel out of a bin. (laughs) Hell yeah. That's how they they show that Forrest Whitaker is intelligent. By having him carry a chess piece around and put it on tables when he sits down. 
and <laughs> and he eats it. He eats a bagel out of the bin, and he compares it to Liam Neeson's bagel that he right. ate from the crime scene. Oh, it's, it's it's amazing. I kind of want to watch this without even having seen the first two. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Yeah. That would honestly both help and hinder your experience because I think it would help. I mean, it it wouldn't really help. It it would be an amazing experience regardless. But there's also like the strangeness of nothing in the first two films has anything to do with this film, really. It's they kill off his wife in the first like couple minutes to completely disconnect it from from the previous films. It's the best. It's almost a surrealist film. It's so all over the place. Liam Neeson's daughter is pregnant. And that's like a plot point in the film. And at one point, he poisons her food to get her <laughs> to puke so that she'll go to the bathroom so that he can meet her in secret. And it's never addressed whether or not that kills the baby. Oh, my God. It's wild. It's so all over the place. Oh, it's great. If you've ever wanted to see Liam Neeson do an accidental abortion or Forrest Whitaker eat a bagel out of a bin, this is your movie. I love that. And it's going to be like 19 cuts per second. It's great. I think we need to move on or else I'm just going to stop talking here and go watch the movie. Yeah, no, that's cool. We can move on. That was. Yeah. What an interesting, what an interesting segue into Taken 3. I was definitely taken aback. (laughs) (laughs) What if, what if we don't even say goodbyes or anything? The podcast just stops there. (laughs) Well, it's a podcast, uh, September update. Yeah, everybody go watch Taken 3. See you later. <laughs> no, you, you really sold it, Finn. That was great. Yeah, it's it's awesome. So you got uh, any more surprises up your ass you're waiting to pull out? or? No, that's my three surprises. Bambi's weird, Maltese Falcon's mid, and Taken 3 is kind of a masterpiece. What a odd series of events <laughs> that just happened. Time for you to pull out, Pete. <laughs> you told me that when I was with my ex-wife. Uh, let's see. I hate us. <laughs> <laughs> I said when we four got together, this is going to be the unhinged cast. And I was so yeah. right. This is, yeah, unhinged cast is about right. Yeah. <laughs> well. I guess it's time for my surprises of them. Yeah, so we already talked about Yakuza. Now that was a bit of a disappointment. Surprisingly so. Now, you thought Iggy was throwing you a curveball with a 30s film. I'm throwing you a curveball with a 30 film. King of Jazz. Oh, nice. Yeah, watch that. It is oddly ahead of its time. It really feels like a 50s film. They got teleported back to the 30s somehow. Real heavy on the effects. A lot more so than you would expect from a film like this. Big, extravagant sets. I, it's just like a filmmaking marvel for its time. I highly recommend it just to look at it. Is this the one that's like partially animated? Yes, it does have the um, opening animation. It kind of goes over how Paul Whitman, the uh, sort of, I guess, ringleader, you could say, of the circus, uh, how he became the king of jazz and it involves him like going on a hunting trip to Africa and 
whatnot. Yeah, and the two-strip Technicolor it has, it gives it a really interesting look that I wish more films had two-strip Technicolor. Because it really is just a surprisingly great look for only having two colors. What what colors are they? Uh, Red and green. Yeah, I probably should have mentioned that. I'm trying to picture what that could look like. Yeah, so am I. This movie sounds... Uh, It should be somewhere up on YouTube if you feel like fishing around for that. I'm looking at it. This, so I watched Phantom of the Opera recently, the one from the 30s, and it has a sequence like this, and I thought it was really interesting looking. I think it does the same colors, like a blue and red. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of curious to watch this because this looks really nice, and if it does that whole thing all the way through, I'm, I'm extremely on board. This does look really interesting as well. Where does the animation aspect come in? Because I'm looking at the genres and it says that it's animation. Uh, like I said, it's just with that opening bit. Oh, okay. How he became the king of jazz. That, that's a little disappointing to hear. Yeah, but it, it happens. For years, I'd seen that it was uh, like one of five movies that Criterion had that were animated. And I was like, oh, that's cool. It's a 30s movie. But it's just like the opening and that's it. Yeah, unfortunately. Kind of lame. But everything else about it more than makes up for that small disappointment. It, it kind of acts more as like a variety show where you'll have like various skits and musical numbers and whatnot. And the humor works better than you would think considering the time period, even though half of the jokes are like women cheating on their husbands. And, and that's not even an exaggeration. That's like literally half the skits are... Oh, my husband's coming home. Quick, hide in the closet. And you know, various shenanigans that can arise from that. Classic. But, uh, yeah, that was a neat surprise. And the number one I've got, which was also my best favorite, whatever the hell we were calling that, Fires on the Plane, the 2014 version by Shinya Tsukamoto. And now this is a bit of a surprise because, A, I've been doing a Tsukamoto watch-through of his work. And I was kind of downplaying this one since, you know, even amongst the his fans, it seems like it's not a very well-known or well-seen film. And just by how great it was. Like, I was not expecting this to be a four-and-a-half-star film when I went into it. It looks great. I'm excited to get to this on... The, the Weeblot Tsukamoto episode. Yeah, maybe one of these years. So many episodes we have to promote. <laughs> yeah. So this is the remake of the 1959 film, no? Yes. Yeah, that's the thing about it. It's not a remake of the film. It's like a re-adaptation of the novel itself. Apparently Tsukamoto was a big fan of it as a kid, and he's always wanted to like make it into a film. And... Well, here we are with it now. Have you seen the the, the original film? E- yes, about two, three years ago, I want to say. How does it compare? Well, it's been so long since I've seen it. I can't really go into two specifics. With the original, I think it goes more into like a sort of dramatic territory where, you know, it's about the characters and just trying to survive, or the character and you know, his predicaments and whatnot. Whereas with Tsukamoto's, it feels a lot more visceral. Like, it's more about the moment-to-moment atrocities of war, 
you know, try and survive it. Briefly touching on like how it affects even the local populations. This is uh, set in the Philippines, I think just a little after World War II or before it. I can't remember. Or before the end of it, I mean. And he really lays up the horror aspects of war in ways I really haven't seen in any other war film short of like Come and See. Oh, it's in the same territory as Come and See? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. It's like right underneath it for me in terms of the best anti-war war films, whatever that would be. Uh, there's like this one particular bit. He runs into a platoon of soldiers and they've traveled for a bit together. And they need to cross this road in order to get to the capital city to you know, get out of there. But it's guarded by you know, American soldiers. So they got to wait until night to sort of sneak through it. And night comes, they try to sneak through the road. And like the lights just flash open. They're all mowed down by machine gun fire. And, you know, he doesn't focus on, you know, 20 guys getting mowed down at once or whatever. He sort of focuses more on the after effects of that, where a guy gets his arm blown off and he's like searching the ground for it. And he finds one. But then we see another guy searching for an arm. And he also grabs onto it. So they're just like fighting over this one arm while they're still being fired at by machine guns and stuff. And how he edits the violence, too, I think is what really gets it. Mm-hmm. Because he, he chooses these moments where you feel it. You know something is going to happen. But he lingers on it just long enough to like catch you off guard. And then he'll just smack you with it. You know, like a bullet going through someone or a grenade exploding. And then he'll just linger on the after effects of that for a little too long. And it's just, it's just a really fascinating watch. And I don't know how it's gotten overlooked the way it has, not even by the hardcore Tsukamoto fans, but even just in the general film community. Well, much like Taken 3, I think you've done a good job selling this movie. I was going to say, this sounds really interesting. Tsukamoto seems like a, like a perfect fit for a chaotic, come and see looking war movie. Yeah, like, I never expected that I would want a Tsukamoto war film, and yet when I got it, that's all I want from him It now. makes so much sense as soon as yeah. it's in front of you, yeah. And there's even, like, these strangely, like, Terrence Malick-esque moments within the film where he's just wandering the jungle, and it's just these super beautiful shots of nature, which were apparently all shot on, like, camcorders, by the way, so it's not, like, even the highest fidelity whatever and he still just makes it all look freaking just gorgeous nice yeah uh have you watched vital yet i have yeah yeah he does sort of similar stuff in vital with he it's it's kind of intimate and handheld and then he'll just cut to these like gorgeous gorgeous like photographic shots of like very meticulously crafted images and you're like damn this man has an eye he can really yeah, Malik is a Malik is an interesting comparison, but not an entirely incorrect one, I think. Yeah, especially as Malik obviously has taken to doing more kind of explicitly digital stuff in the recent era. Yeah, Sugimoto sort of went that same route himself. Uh, mm-hmm. Post Haze, I think it was. Yeah, 
And, and this feels like an interesting like evolution of his digital style. Because you know, I think there's like a distinct period between his film style and his digital style. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a film like Gemini is extremely filmic. It's very. That's actually like one of the only two I still need to see from him. Wow. And Kiriko uh, oh. the Goblin. Yeah, I was kind of wanting to just go through his independent stuff first and then go back and play catch up with the studio stuff. That's fair enough. I need to see them all. I've only seen Tetsuo. Damn. And I didn't like it. Tetsuo is not his best. Tetsuo yeah. is a very specific type of movie, but it's not hugely representative of his films as a whole, I feel. Yeah, not really. It's not really. It's kind of... Tetsuo's kind of wacky and... It's dark, but it's it's kind of yeah. Well, one of my one of the like prevailing images from that movie that I remember is like, or it might be from, or it might be from House, but isn't there like a a sequence where he has like something stuck on his ass and he like drags it across the floor? Mm, that might have been House. I was gonna say that I don't remember. There's that. a couple of things stuck on his ass. There's <laughs> <laughs> things stuck all over his body. Well, he has a drill penis. Moving on. <laughs> I think I think definitely, even if you didn't like Tetsuo, a movie like Bullet Ballet or Vital is a really good place to start. Egg, yeah, you're a romantic. You would love Vital. Vital. Okay. Yeah, it's it's basically it posits that the most romantic act, the most intimate act one can engage with in is dissecting your dead partner. Holy shit. <laughs> and it is heartbreaking and beautiful and dark. It's like it's a total masterpiece. You would love it. Maybe I'll maybe I'll get that Tsukamoto set. It's yeah, out there. Do it. Yeah, it's definitely worth the investment. Even if you don't love all of them, he will give you something you can't really get anywhere else. What are your thoughts on Tokyo Fist? Love it. Oh man. Is that more representative of his uh, his other movies? Well, the thing about Tsukamoto is each one of his films are kind of different in their own way. Yeah. Like, the filmmaking's still kind of the same, in a sense, but each film has its own unique identity. I was going to say, Tokyo Fist and Bullet Ballet are films where I'm like, they're similar, but they also couldn't be more different. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically Tsukamoto's whole filmography. Yeah, but if you watch sort of one or two of his kind of non-Tetsuo movies and not Hiroko the Goblin, you will get a <laughs> gist for kind of what he's doing emotionally, and if you vibe with it, you'll vibe with it, I think. Okay. He does feel kind of unpredictable in the realms that he explores. Oh, yeah. 100%. Even his most recent film, Killing, it's very much a Tsukamoto movie, but it's completely unlike anything he did before him it's just it's like a weird kind of psychosexual samurai drama it's yeah he's he's all over the place but is worth definitely worth giving a go just pick a couple out of random the ones that sound the most interesting and jump in okay i mentioned the uh, tokyo fist because i actually remembered i joined the stream of that like four years ago and i left 30 minutes in because i wasn't really feeling it well, Tokyo Fist is also just one of his worst movies to I, personally. So 
really love Tokyo Fest, but if you jump in sort of halfway through that, that is that is a film that is you really have to get invested with early on. Well, I I didn't jump in halfway. I left oh. thirty minutes in. Oh, sorry. Never mind then. You it was not for you. <laughs> yeah, but that was also four years ago. Yeah, you know the same time when I gave Sunset Boulevard a seven. God so. damn, the stupid era. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Tokyo. Yeah, I feel like Tokyo Fest is is still a bit back with the with the Tetsuo kind of era. It's still very like cartoonish and over the top. I feel like once you hit Bullet Ballet, which was his film immediately after, he settles into being kind of a dark, dramatic romantic. And that stuff is much more interesting. Yeah, that sounds a lot more up my alley than. Yeah, Bullet Ballet is another one. It's about a guy who becomes obsessed with his wife is killed with a gun, and he becomes obsessed with guns and obsessed with this gang of people that he has seen and suspects may have a gun, and he becomes kind of this weird sadomasochistic relationship between him and this the girl in this gang. It's very weird. Yeah, that sounds great. But it's great, yeah. He's really good. But yeah, those first few are kind of more silly and visually experimental and more more based around being kind of just fun, wacky movies with great visuals. Well, I hope I said everything I needed to say about Fires on the Plane. If I didn't, oh well. Wait for <laughs> Sukamoto cast coming eventually. Soon? Maybe. Someday? We'll see. We'll see if Weblot finds an audience. If it doesn't, I will find one for it. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that uh, wraps up the September wrap-up. Any other last-minute comments, suggestions, anything you want to throw out there, guys? Drugs. Yeah. Yeah, don't do drugs. please. Or, you know, do them. Responsibly. Substance abuse is a very nuanced issue. Pick a cool one if you're going to do one. Oh, I guess that wraps it up. Thank you for listening. I'll just say, uh, in case the the released version of this episode has been massively cut down, <laughs> uh, we've just been through like three hours and a half of recording, and it's been a wild ride, and I'm glad to have shared it with you all. Likewise. In- likewise. It was fun. Hopefully this particular group can come back together for more unhinged talks about Tsukamoto movies and such. In much the same way that the the wacky Tsukamoto movies are not representative of his career. This is not representative at all of the Lotcast at large. (laughs) Unhinged episode. Uh, We should come back together for a Japanuary episode. There we go. 100%. Now you're talking. (laughs) (laughs) you guys in three months all right see you then oh there you go making episodes live on air okay now this is the end of the episode okay bye bye uh mark your calendars folks for next time and goodbye